This program is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is new, highly experimental, and we're not experts, just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Today's episode features Andreas, myself, Stephanie, and Ben Dornberg, a former member of the Dogecoin Foundation. Here's Andreas now. Almost six months ago in April of 2014, people started noticing some serious problems with one of the most important and uh, largest participants in the Dogecoin space, a company called Mula.io. At the time, I had tips from a number of people about weird shenanigans going on within Mula, as well as concerns that the founder of Mula was not who they claim to be, that certain activities seem to be scammy in nature and that uh, investors might be being used to fund various operational activities, including marketing schemes to ingratiate the Dogecoin community. At the time, a number of people went on Reddit and blew the whistle pretty loud in typical Reddit fashion shot, uh, because Reddit shoots the messenger always. And a lot of those warnings went unheeded. Now, six months later, Moolah.io has exploded. The founder, Alex Green, aka Ryan Kennedy, aka Ryan Gentle, aka Lemon, and lots of other AKAs, because uh, uh, this person seems to change their names as often as they change their companies, has disappeared. And with that disappearance, about one and a half million dollars belonging both to Moolah, a mint pal, an exchange bought by Moolah, as well as uh, various other activities and uh, uh, money held on behalf of other companies has now missing. Joining us today, Ben Dornberg, one of the people who the Dogecoin Foundation in disgust during the uh, time when these things were being back in April, and uh, was one of the people who made a lot of noise about Mullah, leading to personal threats against him by Alex Green, as well as a lot of negative response by the community. Seems like Ben was right. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Mullah first came on the scene back in January. At the time, they were a Swiss company that was selling Bitcoin to fiat ATMs. Uh, which, you know, they've still never shipped. Gradually, they sort of grew their presence on uh, the Dogecoin subreddit and in the Dogecoin community, and they expanded to running a wallet service and an escrow service and a merchant platform and about 15 other businesses. Uh, And then now today we sit where all of those businesses have shut. MintPal, which they were operating, has shut down, and, you know, a lot of people are out a lot of money, so it's a sad situation. But it's not a surprising situation. And this was one that not only could be predicted, but in fact was predicted, not just by you, but by a number of other people who very, very loudly blew the whistle. The community chose to ignore this. Why do you think that is? Well, so one of the major factors was that there were people who had invested in profit shares of Moolah.io. And so they had a very strong financial incentive to uh, not have people think that the company was a scam. You know, I don't necessarily think that those investors were purposely doing this, but they had a big financial reason to 
ignore the warning signs. And I think in some cases, some of the investors were selling their profit shares to other people. And so I think there were many Mulan investors who did know that something was off. And so they chose to keep quiet about it so they could resell their shares and basically leave someone else holding the bag. I think that's that's one factor. Another big factor was just the issue with the centralization of the communication uh, channels in Dogecoin. You know, the subreddit was a really big uh, gathering place for discussion. There's also an IRC channel. And, uh, you know, Alex or Ryan or whatever you want to call him really went after those points of centralization. Uh, he made friends with several of the subreddit moderator, moderators. He, he later hired one of them. Uh, he, you know, made friends with the core developers. He had a lot of drama with the IRC moderators and tried to um, sort of cow them into submission. And so when people were trying to blow the whistle, a lot of it got removed. Uh, you know, uh, people were not really able to talk freely about the, the warning signs that they did see. Uh, so it was kind of a whole lot of factors coming together, coupled with the fact that so many Dogecoin people were new to, to Bitcoin and they didn't realize how susceptible uh, these communities can be to scammers and, and you know, how many scams uh, have been pulled off by, by people like Lemon or, or Ryan. So this entire situation happened over the course of less than a year. I mean, is that right? This started in January and, and you know, went from essentially inception to termination in what, like 10 months? Absolutely. Uh, you know, if you want to look at how he managed to grow so fast, one of the biggest factors was, you know, Dogecoin was really built in large part on tipping and donations to charity. And uh, Ryan tipped and gave to charity probably about $100,000. Uh, he would just give out thousand dollar tips over IRC uh, to random people, and you know it, it turns out that when you give people free money, they tend to <laughs> they tend to like you. Ben, what were some of the first red flags or warning signs that made you start to think twice about this? Well, the first one was that he said that no one could see his face because he had really bad health problems and anxiety, and also had received a lot of death threats and also was involved in a messy, messy custody dispute. And so no one, no one could know what he looked like. <laughs> and I, I thought that was a bad start for someone who was trying to raise uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, I'd also been you know, talking to a lot of different players in the Bitcoin industry, and I went to uh, a conference on compliance in DC run by the Digital Asset Transfer Authority, or DATA. And, and then I was hearing statements from Moolah like, they were the only company since to operate an exchange in all 50 states in the US. <laughs> the idea they would have beat Coinbase or, you know, BitPay to, to those kind of uh, money transmitter licenses was just ridiculous. And it was just clear that there was no way that he had gotten this stuff cleared with a lawyer. And, and I'm not necessarily opposed if someone wants to run a borderline gray market crypto company. I'm not necessarily opposed to that if they're upfront about it. But he was claiming that all these clearly gray or black market activities had been cleared by lawyers and were completely legal. Those were a few of the many, many red flags that that popped up. It sounds like he was really doing a lot of social engineering there. Like he kind of played off of people's trust in the legal system. They're supposed to protect you, but so he, he was saying, oh, yes, yeah, it's all legal. He definitely but. used the legal system as a cloak. I mean, he you know, when I would raise questions, he would say, oh, well, you know, we're a registered company in the UK and, you know, we've filed for rec you know, recognition with FinCEN. So he kind of 
uh, was able to figure out which aspects of the legal system didn't require much diligence and, and weren't really proof of anything, but would seem like proof. And so I think people would have been better off, you know, if he'd been entirely uh, avoiding the law or entirely abiding by the law, I think people would have been okay. But it's he was sort of playing in the boundaries in between and, and that enabled him to kind of get away with stuff for a while. So what is the getaway with in this particular circumstance? You said that there's money missing, you know, is this the what what was the whistle blown on before? So the whistle that I tried to blow was, you know, Alex Green basically went on the Dogecoin subreddit and said, I'm taking investment in my company Moolah. Supposedly, he claims that he raised 750 Bitcoins just from regular people in the subreddit. And I've, you know, I've been working with those investors to try and kind of put the pieces back together and figure out how those people can try and get their money back. So there's 750 Bitcoins in investment that raised there's 750 Bitcoins that he's was supposed to be holding in escrow for the Syscoin team. There's also an unknown number of Bitcoins missing from MidPal. He claims he was hacked, but I have my doubts. And there's also an unknown number of altcoins that you know may be missing from MidPal. So the the total amount missing is is still unclear. We're we're trying to figure that out now, but it's potentially a whole lot of money. How large of a player in the ecosystem, in the Dogecoin ecosystem, relatively speaking, has Alex Green been since the inception of Dogecoin? Because Dogecoin just came out, what, two or three months before it sounds like Moolah got started. So, I mean, it sounds like he's kind of in everything. Up until March, uh, Moolah really wasn't that involved. Then what happened was every time any sort of opportunity would present itself, he would just jump on it. So, you know, if there were a few, four or five different people, who are building merchant platforms, he would announce that he's building a merchant platform, tip people, you know, $5,000 on IRC to get a bunch of attention, and then open up a merchant platform. And so he kind of, you know, there were, there was a really vibrant ecosystem of people building services. And, and some of that's still around, but many people just left because, you know, this guy would open a service, it would have no fees, and he would spend thousands and thousands of dollars marketing it. And there really wasn't a way for kind of, the, you know, small uh, hobbyist developers or people who were just giving things a try, you know, didn't really have much of a chance. There were several people who were running services where you could buy, you know, Dogecoin online with PayPal, and they were trying to come up with complicated ways to make that work. And then Alex just opened up an illegally operating exchange that would take direct wire transfers and send you Dogecoin. His position in, in the Dogecoin community grew very rapidly because of the amount of money that he essentially just gave out. He was trying to take over the foundation. That was the first time that I almost quit in protest was because he was about to take over the foundation, which would have you know put him in charge of raising all the money for charity. Because he had no, you know, he didn't care how well his services functioned and he didn't care about the law. So there was no problem for him different services at a time poorly. This is a very similar story to MT Gox, both in terms of the rise as a critical component of an ecosystem, the collapse blamed on hacking, the uh, disappearance of the primary, and also the link to being a key player within the foundation, the supposedly independent organization that was acting as a representative of the community. We see a lot of parallels here, but even down to, in fact, the previous company of both Carpellis, Alex Green, aka Ryan Kennedy, aka Gentle, etc., 
was a hosting company, a number of companies before that. But it seems like Alex Green was a much more accomplished serial scammer. This was not his first ride with scams. Well, what can you tell us about that? I think this may be possibly uh, you know somewhere around his 10th company. So Ryan actually has several more parallels with Mark Carpellis. He's also uh, obsessed with Japan and Japanese culture, and he actually was arrested, uh, I believe, last year for scamming people in the Magic the Gathering community in, uh, in the UK. So Ryan got his start organizing anime conventions in the UK and taking money for them. And then uh, at the last minute, uh, the venue would cancel or it would turn out he never had booked a venue. Some family member would die. There would always be some circumstance. Then he moved on to web hosting businesses for a while, he was selling some kind of Usenet device that, that never appeared because he had a heart attack, apparently, at age 26. Last year, he started a site called Crypto.pm, which is almost identical, actually, to the uh, part of Moolah that was an investment scheme. He claimed that he was starting up an exchange and people could invest, and then he just essentially walked away with everyone's money. Um, and, you know, so there's... Yeah, he's he's been scamming people steadily for, it looks like, about 10 years and also has a very checkered past. He's been used of uh, a lot of domestic uh, violence and, and other things. So it's pretty clear that this is not his first rodeo. Uh, he had a big run-in with the sort of startup community in London over a company that he created and was supposed to sponsor an event, I guess, and never came through with the funds and had an employee that he never paid. You know, this is not someone who became a scammer because of Bitcoin. This is someone who is essentially a, a professional social engineer and scammer. So I assume this wasn't known when people were, you know, trusting him and using his services and things like that. How did this wind up coming out? I mean, like, was it suddenly just a big dump of documents or did somebody have to really ferret this out? We're lucky that, you know, because of the questions that were raised, Alex was forced to have that Skype conversation with Jackson and I, you know, he was trying to not let people find out what he looked like. Um, but we were able to get him to do a Skype conversation. I released that video. And so we had a picture of his face. And when an article came out about a week ago, when Ryan first said, Oh, sorry, Moolah is out of money and we're closing down. There's an article in TechCrunch that linked to another article with his face on it. Poetically, someone that he had scammed and screwed over in the past recognized his face they sent an email to jackson saying this guy you've been dealing with is actually you know i recognize him that's ryan kennedy and as soon as we found that you know we just googled the name and it came up with a very uh, uh, thorough encyclopedia dramatica page about all of his different uh, uh, identities and scams and a, a big picture of him uh, with caption don't believe the lies and so from there, uh, Jackson and I wrote up a summary demonstrating that this was the same person and cross-referencing photos. And I posted that to Reddit and I actually got banned from all of Reddit <laughs> for posting personal information while Ryan's account is still still active. But I, I, oh. <laughs> I did end reinstated yesterday. So this isn't the first time that there were more consequences for you blowing the whistle than there were for the obvious scammer who you were talking about. Now, I remember back when we first had this in, in April, you were being threatened 
not just by random people on Reddit, but also very explicitly and specifically by Alex Green himself. Right. So, so Ryan threatened to sue me. He threatened to sue the foundation, you know, because we wouldn't let him into the foundation. And essentially, Ryan was threatening Jackson that if I did anything, he would sue Jackson. He also made some kind of veiled threats to the extent where, you know, other members of the foundation were under the impression that he might have been threatening to take extra legal action against us. You know, I I didn't really buy it. I didn't think he was going to sue anybody or hire anybody because I I thought he was all talk. But yeah, he, he threatened me. You know, a lot of people in the Dogecoin community who had ties to Alex put a lot of pressure on me in different ways. It was a very stressful experience. I mean, the the incentives are really poorly aligned. You know, I, I really had nothing to gain by trying to expose him, whereas he stood to make potentially a million dollars if he could get me to shut up. Just fundamentally, there's there's scams have so much more, you know, to gain than the people fighting them. It, it's kind of a poor situation in that sense. Considering if he gives out a few enough thousand dollar tips, you know, that might be a lot to that person. But Nothing compared to the jackpot that he's going to get at the end of the scam. Especially when he's giving away other people's money. You know, either money that uh, came from his investors or money that he's taken from people in previous scams. So, so yeah, I mean, it's... it's So it's like a goodwill Ponzi, kind of. Yeah. Or a Ponzi with a goodwill element. Well, that's the only... I, I was going to say, the only good thing about this whole moolah situation is it's possibly the first Ponzi scheme where a lot of the money ended up going to so many different charities. <laughs> Actually, I think from what the reading I've been doing now, it looks like a lot of Ponzi schemers and scammers will give money to charity as a way of demonstrating that they're a good person. I think Bernie Madoff had a lot of uh, charitable contributions, so maybe he did his homework. One of the things that I found interesting was the reaction that Alex Green had to the initial allegations back in April of 2014. And at the time when these allegations came out, we saw a response from Alex Green on Reddit that was extremely defensive, that claimed that he was being bullied so much he was going to leave the community, claimed various uh, health problems, that he was receiving death threats, threatened to um, you know, abandon the community and the business that he had built, attacked all of the detractors as being lazy, greedy, jealous people, etc., which by the way, reminds me very much of the kind of response we saw from Mark Carpellis when people had questions about empty Gox. You know, we started here talking about empty Gox and, you know, the fine line between clownish incompetence and criminality and how it was a very dangerous thing and people shouldn't put their money in it six months before it blew up. Here you had you and many others, the community talking about Mua.io six months before it blew up. And the response from the founder was pretty much identical. To me, that raised a lot of red flags. A legitimate business that's being accused with baseless accusations uses transparency and disclosure and the truth to defend themselves. And you know the response we saw there was shutting down defensive and avoidant, which is to me, a huge red flag. What did you think of that response? At that point, I was pretty convinced that, that this was not on the up and up. But yeah, that response was very worrying. Uh, I will say that some aspects of that response are similar to what I've seen from Sean's outpost. 
And I know that might not be a popular thing, but there have been a lot of concerns raised on the Bitcoin subreddit about the lack of accountability and the lack of detail and lack of transparency. And, you know, most of those questions from what I've seen have been completely avoided. So just to make myself as as unpopular as possible, you know, I, I think people people are too willing to let people off the hook when they say, oh, well, I'm not legally obligated to provide this information. There's no reason why someone who's engaged in a legitimate business shouldn't be willing to provide that kind of information. Yeah, in fact, just a couple days ago, this stuff from Alex Green was still going on. You can The blog is still up at moolah.io. It's blog.moolah.io. He's still posting stuff about how he denies all these horrible accusations that people have thrown at him and his name was legally changed and blah, blah, blah. We've been hacked and I'm sorry, I've totally screwed up. He's using every single tactic. You know, there's the, on one hand, there's the apology, there's the uh, running to the legal system, there's the uh, defensiveness, there's people are being mean to me. It's like every single possible tactic you could imagine. It's textbook. Today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by CryptoKit.com. Today's magic word is learn. L-E-A-R-N. Learn. You've got until the 28th of October to visit Let'sTalkBitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iPhone app and enter it for your share of the listener rewards. Back to the show. Ben, when you first had concerns about this, I know the first thing you did was you went public with these concerns and you challenged um, Alex Green in a very public way. But um, there certainly were other venues for airing these issues and bringing public attention, including media in general, more broader media sources, as well as law enforcement. Can you talk a bit about what avenues you sought out as a whistleblower in this particular case in order to bring attention to this issue, what avenues you didn't see, what the thinking was behind choosing how to bring attention to this issue? Well, I didn't want to contact law enforcement if I wasn't absolutely sure that it was a malicious scam. You know, I I don't uh, believe in reporting people to the SEC for a technical violation of securities law if they're a well-intentioned uh, person who's you know trying to do everything above board. And so the first thing that I did was contact you and some other people with expertise in the crypto community to say, does this look like a legitimate company or does this look like other scams you've seen? And the strong feedback I got was that this looks like a scam. Uh, and so then I started reaching out to various lawyers, both in the US and the UK, and they said, yeah, this, this looks like what he's doing is illegal. I contacted Coindesk. This sounds complicated. We don't want to bother looking into this. I contacted some other journalists. Andreas, you put me in touch with some folks at Wired who ended up not writing about it, but um, you know, I let them know about it. I talked to someone affiliated with the Bitcoin Foundation. I talked to someone affiliated with 
data asset transfer authority. So I, you know, I pretty much talked to everyone I could possibly think of. Then I found out that other people had already, you know, after I blew the whistle publicly, I found out that other people had gone to law enforcement to talk about. At that point, the focus was mostly on the fact that Ryan was offering illegal securities. You, you can't sell a profit share in your company to random people on the internet with no prospectus and no signed contract. At that point, I found out that law enforcement was already involved. I'd blown the whistle in as many ways as I possibly could. I kind of, the moderators of the subreddit and other people in the community basically said, look, you have to shut up about this. You know, you can stay in the community, but you can't talk about moolah anymore. And I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm not comfortable doing that. So I'm just going to have to leave. From what I've been hearing, you know, hopefully those earlier contacts with law enforcement are going to show some fruit. And then since Moolah kind of blew up and found turned out everyone's money was gone, I know a lot of people have contacted the Action Fraud Department in the UK, as well as the FBI, as well as the SEC. Uh, so at this point, as well as local police in the UK. So at this point, there are at least, you know, probably six or seven different agencies in different countries that have had complaints filed with them. Looking at the system of self-regulation, I think at no point did anyone I talked to say, oh, you've got a potential scam. Let me put you in touch with X person. They're the go-to for, you know, taking down a scam. I mean, you know, I would have hoped that, that the Bitcoin Foundation or Data or, uh, you know, one of these groups that's organized to supposedly look out for the interests of people in the community would have some point person on fraud or, or would have at least made a statement saying, you know, this looks shady. People should be careful. You know, I was just reaching out to people and they said, yep, that looks like a scam. And then I was still on my own. And so, you know, I'm sure there, there are, I'm sure there were other steps that I could have taken, but I, I don't think it's realistic to expect people who are trying to blow the whistle to make more than probably the 20 phone calls and go public. I mean, there's just only so much you can expect people to do. And if, if that's not enough, then I'm worried that it's just going to be a, a nonstop procession of these scams. Well, I mean, it's not just the fact that you had to do a lot of things. It was also that you faced some pretty serious consequences for your actions, both in terms of being ostracized in the community, but also being threatened legally and being threatened with violence, which is not surprising because threats of violence are very often accompany these, these scams. I think all of us who have been in the public eye have faced that kind of reaction from time to time. So there's really no incentive to be a whistleblower. It's a really miserable and lonely experience. You make the sounds in the public arena that you need to do to get people's attention. And sometimes people just don't want to hear the truth because they would rather continue to believe that this is a fantastic company supporting Dogecoin and doing great things like supporting you know, the NASCAR and all of the other fancy big marketing activities. People's greed or desire to look only on the bright side gets in the way of them listening to to the whistleblower. You warned this community, and pretty much universally, the reaction was, uh, you know, shut up, you're ruining the party. Yeah, well, just to clarify real quickly, you know, like you mentioned, there definitely were other people within Dogecoin who, who you know, who backed me up and who expressed concerns. Um, and also, I just want to make clear that Ryan never explicitly threatened anybody with uh, physical harm, but you know there was a sense shared by other people that he had kind of made vague threats about you know do whatever he needs to do that that we interpreted that way. 
so Ryan, like I mentioned, came up in the anime community, which is similar in that that's a community where people are going to have a good time. They don't want a lot of disagreement, a lot of arguments kind of harshes everyone's buzz. And so he really took advantage of that. He basically would make sure that a lot of dust and drama got kicked up. And then people would just say, look, we want this all to go away. And people calling him out are the problem. And so we'll just try and basically make this go away. Um, And so I think you really hit the nail on the head there. Do you think Dogecoin will survive this? Or do you think people that kind of came into the community because of it are just going to be turned off forever? Yeah, I think Dogecoin will survive it. I think I think the real harm that Ryan did to the community is actually not in directly running off with everyone's money. I think it's the fact that he really distorted the way the community functioned. And by that, I mean, because he started so many different businesses, uh, he pushed out a lot of the people who were working on cool projects. I think also... Dogecoin became really centered around doing these large one-off fundraisers like the Dogecar. And I think that probably wouldn't have happened if Ryan hadn't come in with, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to finish off projects. I think, you know, what should have happened is that one of these fundraising projects would have not reached its goal. And people would have said, oh, we're a relatively small internet community. Many of us are kids and don't have a whole lot of money. So, you know, what other ways are there to spread the word? But because he was really kind of distorting all the signals and the feedback loops within the community, it just developed in a direction that was not healthy and not sustainable. It strikes me that the line between opportunist and scammer is actually really difficult to look at and and be able to make heads or tails of before it's too late, because a scammer, at least a scammer that operates you know, as we're talking about here, is an opportunist at its core, is an opportunist who is, you know, willing to use that opportunity in order to, to further their own at the expense of everybody around them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, many people said, well, yes, we agree that Ryan probably, te- or at that point, Alex probably is technically breaking some rules. And yes, you know, that was a little misleading. And X, Y, and Z, and sure, he hasn't shipped those ATM, but, you know, it's a young company. The laws are unclear. You know, he's figuring things out as he goes. You know, I think to some extent, if he hadn't been so defensive about his identity, I, I think probably I might have believed that. And and he, you know, it could have turned out to be the case. Even up to a month ago, I was still wondering, you know, is this really a scam or is this just absolutely reckless behavior? You know, now that he's got such a well-documented history of fraud after fraud after fraud, that question isn't really there. But yeah, it's it's really hard to distinguish. And especially in a community where people celebrate privacy and celebrate upstart businesses that play fast and loose with the rules, it, it becomes very difficult to call these things out in advance. Chris Ellis, who I, I know has been on the show before, is doing an interesting experiment called Evidence Bundle which is using GitHub to crowdsource evidence about Moolah and the collapse of MintPal, basically putting information as commits into GitHub and then storing the hash of those commits in the blockchain so that there's definitive time stamping of when different information was uncovered. And, and I think it's a really interesting project. So if people Google Chris Ellis evidence bundle, they can get involved with that. 
Ben, this has been a very difficult journey for you, and it's also been a serious blow to the Doge community, but more generally to cryptocurrencies. And I know it was very difficult to figure out what to do when you first became aware of these issues, something we discussed at the time. Knowing what you know now, is there anything you would do differently or any advice you would have for other people who might become aware of shady dealings within the cryptocurrency space and want to do something about it? Yeah, that's a really tough question. I think one of the things that I tried to do was essentially the battle in the court of public opinion. You know, I'm not sure if there was a way to avoid that, but that definitely wasn't effective. Scammers are really good at at manipulating people, and they're also usually offering kind of a narrative that people like. You know, they're going to make a lot of money. Things are going to work out really well. So it's really hard to fight that battle in the public perception. I think I would have probably just written up like one 10-page really detailed document of all the different issues that I saw in a very kind of dispassionate, almost lawyerly fashion. Would have tried to get quotes from various people in the Bitcoin community who were well-known saying, yes, this piece of it is not what I would expect from a company XYZ. I think at the same time, there's just only so much, you know, ultimately I was doing this as a volunteer and I think it's a systemic issue. You have to, you have to make it easier for people. You're, you're never going to have the perfect whistleblower who does everything exactly by the book. I mean, people are people. And so you have to make a system that is efficient and effective at getting someone through the funnel of being a person with concerns to making sure everyone in the community knows about those concerns. And so I think going forward, I'm going to focus on figuring out which pieces of the system need to be improved and which pieces need to be created, rather than trying to put all the onus on one person to do the perfect job. Thanks for listening to episode 156 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's episode was provided by Ben Dornberg, Stephanie Murphy, Andreas M. Antonopoulos, and Adam B. Levine. Music for today's show is provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. See you next time.